Hey, it's Callie, and you're listening to the 41st episode of the Hippie Haven podcast. If you're new here, I release an episode every Wednesday about living an ethical and eco-friendly lifestyle. I want to meet you where you're at, so we cover all sorts of topics, like how to make less trash, composting, urban beekeeping, backyard gardening, secondhand shopping, starting an eco-business, and so much more. My goal is to inspire and enable you to take action, both in your day-to-day routine and on a larger scale of community activism, because I believe that together, we will make a difference. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Hippie Haven podcast so that you automatically get each new episode right when it comes out. Today's guest is Dr. Jessica Shade, the Director of Science Programs at the Organic Center, a nonprofit research and education organization based in Washington, D.C., Their mission is to conduct and convene credible, evidence-based science on the environmental and health effects of organic food and farming and communicate the findings to the public with a vision of a sustainable and secure food system that promotes the health of humans and the environment. Some of Dr. Jessica Shade's most recent collaborations include projects aimed at decreasing nitrogen pollution from agricultural sources, increasing on-farm biodiversity, and developing integrated pest management solutions for organic growers. Dr. Shade developed and leads the center's signature conference event, which brings together policymakers, researchers, farmers, industry members, and other nonprofits to address and overcome challenges faced by the organic sector. She is a Switzer Environmental Fellow and has been honored for her environmental accomplishments by the Ecological Society of America Student Section and Union for Concerned Scientists through their Eco Service Award. She received her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, and today she'll be clearing up all the common myths on organic food. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode on the website hippiehavenpodcast.com forward slash 041. This episode is made possible by Bestowed Essentials, my own zero-waste business. We have an online shop in a retail location in Rapid City, South Dakota, where we offer ethical and eco-friendly home goods to help you reduce your trash and your impact on the planet. All of our products are natural, vegan, cruelty-free, palm oil-free, and we remove one pound of trash from American beaches for every order placed on our website. You can support my 100% female-run company by getting your zero-waste essentials at www.bestowedessentials.com. As always, thank you for helping me keep the mic on. So tell me about the Organic Center and the work that you do. Sure. The Organic Center is a nonprofit organization, and we have two main focuses. One is to communicate research that's happening from all over the world to stakeholders that are interested in it. And that's everything from consumers who are trying to make an educated decision about what they're eating and what they're feeding their family, to researchers who are doing research on organic issues, to policymakers, to industry members. It's really a broad variety of stakeholders that we talk to. And of course, farmers are one of our big focus groups. And that kind of leads into the other area that we really focus on, which is not just communicating research that's happening, but also understanding where there are gaps in our knowledge and then collaborating with academic or governmental institutions to do the research that can fill those knowledge gaps. And what is your professional background? 
I started working in organic food way back in 1999 when um, I was going to college and was a co-owner of a small organic foods cooperative. And at that point in my life, I actually was pretty sure I was going to be an art major. Um, I had no interest in science or math. And I really credit working with organic foods as making me realize how important science is to our day-to-day -day life because I didn't even realize how much of what science is actually connects with our real world. And so as I started learning more and more about the science behind organic food, I started realizing that this wasn't just important, but this is something that was important to me. And I remember um, when I was maybe 18 or 19, I was visiting my grandparents in a rural part of Michigan. And it's an area that, um, let's just say, organic has not been <laughs> present in before. And so I went to the local grocery store and there was organic broccoli there. And I was so excited that I immediately bought it. And as I was checking out, the checkout woman looked at this organic broccoli and looked at me and had this skeptical look on her face and said, does this stuff really taste better? And it was this aha moment for me where I realized that people had no idea about why they should buy organic because sure, some organic tastes better, but that, that doesn't even touch on the multitude of reasons for why people should be buying organic. And so it, it was really, um, really made me want to plug into what science is and how to not just conduct science, but also communicate it with people who might not otherwise be thinking about how it's important to what they are eating and what they're doing in their day-to-day -day lives. So um, after I graduated from college, and that was at the University of California, Santa Cruz, I um, went on to get my PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. And um, from there, I wanted to meld my two worlds of science research and science communication and interest in healthy um, food choices. And so this job was the perfect combination of all of my interests. And to clarify, when we're talking about food, what does organic mean? Organic means, number one, it's produced without toxic synthetic pesticides. So that's everything from herbicides to insecticides, rodenticides, fungicides. It's basically the synthetic chemicals that are used to control weeds and pests. It's also, it also means non-GMO. And this is an area that I think um, a lot of people are kind of confused about because there are separate labels for non-GMO. But if you find the organic label, that actually already means non-GMO. I have a friend um, who's really plugged into the food movement and I went to visit her. And I've always thought of her as being really knowledgeable about the food that she chooses. And after she had her first kid, she, she told me, you know, I used to always buy organic, but now I'm more concerned about 
GMO presence in my food. So I've switched over from organic to buying non-GMO. And I was like, oh, you know, organic means non-GMO. And she had no idea. So that's, that's one of the areas that I always try and emphasize because I think that people don't exactly realize what it means. Um, but organic also means a lot of other things. So it means that you have to be not just supporting, but growing the health of your soil. You have to be supporting biodiversity. You can't use sewage sludge, which was kind of a surprise to me when I realized that that was ever used on any farm. Um, and then if you're buying animal products, there are a whole bunch of animal health measures that are also in place to support animals. So for example, for um, dairy or li any livestock, you need to have, you need to allow access to pasture for those animals and their diet has to be primarily pasture based. And even if you need to supplement with some grain, so for example, um, in a lot of the country, there's times of year where it's so cold that the cows can't go out and graze on the pasture. That feed for those animals has to be 100% organic so that no pesticides are getting into that food stream, even from the feed that the cows are eating. They also can't use any antibiotics or growth hormones, which are also a concern for people who are interested in reducing the residues in their um in their food. Is sewage sludge used on farms here in America? The term sewage sludge is kind of out of date. I think people say biosolids now. Um, and it's highly processed and cleaned to be safe. I, I would never say that um, farmers would knowingly be putting out unsafe things into their fields, but that's one of the regulations for organic is no biosolid sewage sludge. And now this episode is primarily focused on organic, but since non-GMO ties into it so much, can you talk a little bit about what is non-GMO? What does that stand for? Why is that something to be aware of? Yeah. So what GMO means is genetically modified organism. And um, the way that you see this in the crops that we eat is the DNA of the crops is edited, usually to put in a trait that's desirable for managing pests and weeds. So one of the most common GMOs out there is Roundup Ready crops. And what that, what Roundup Ready crops means is that they are resistant to the spray of Roundup, which is an herbicide and the main ingredient of that herbicide is glyphosate. And the outcome of these Roundup Ready crops is that it enables the excessive spray of the pesticide Roundup. So um, farmers can just completely inundate the field with Roundup, their crops will survive, but all the other weeds will get killed off or at least that's the idea. Um, in reality, what that has translated to is higher levels of Roundup, um, higher use rates of Roundup, and the development of 
super weeds, which are weeds that are resistant to Roundup and have become really hard to control for farmers, both organic and conventional. And so what's your professional opinion on consuming GMO foods? I'm concerned about GMOs um, primarily because of their impact on the environment. And we just cannot be sure what the outcomes of altering DNA are. And this is something that I think it's overlooked a lot is when you're making edits to the fundamental building blocks of organisms, it's hard to understand or to fully be able to even model what the outcomes are gonna be on complicated systems like our environment. So one example is um, GMOs. So if you have a crop, let's say you have genetically modified rice, that rice can cross with weedy species that are distantly related to it and have impacts on those weeds that we didn't realize it would have. So a lot of weeds that are crossed with genetically modified crops end up becoming more weedy and harder to control than we previously thought. Another concern for me about the use of GMOs, especially when it comes to Roundup Ready crops, is the increase in pesticides that have been associated with the increase of planting those crops. So as we plant more Roundup Ready soybeans, for example, that's correlated with an increase in the use of Roundup. So inadvertently, it's increasing the amount of pesticides that are getting sprayed. And this is definitely a topic that I want to dedicate an entire episode to at some point. Um, but for now, I do want to talk about pesticides. And we hear these different words thrown around pesticides, insecticides, herbicides. What is the difference between these words? What do they mean? Sure. So one of the ways that you can tell the difference, um, pesticide is the catch-all phrase. All that means is a chemical that um, that is going to kill whatever the pest or weed you have may be. Um, so that's the umbrella term is pesticide. Within that umbrella, there's several other um, chemicals. So herbicide kills weeds. And you can always tell by the first part of the word. So herbs, it kills herbs, which are weeds. If you say insecticide, that's pretty clear. It kills insects. Fungicides kill fungus. Um, rodenticides kill rodents. So um, there are a lot of different types of pesticides within that umbrella um, topic. So how is organic agriculture better for the soil and the water? Thinking about soils and waters is a complicated topic because organic doesn't just provide one benefit. It has this synergistic combination of benefits. So one of the easy ways to look at how organic helps soils and water is that it doesn't use pesticides. And um, that's kind of surface level because you can you can think about how if you're spraying pesticides, that's going to have an impact on the life that's inside that soil. It's going to run off into the waterways and contaminate um, groundwater, drinking water, 
It's going to contaminate local rivers and streams. Another way that it that um, the use of synthetic chemicals in general can impact, especially water health, is by using synthetic fertilizer. So conventional farms use a lot of synthetic fertilizer, which then runs off into the waterways and ends up in lakes and the ocean and contributes to things like dead zones in the ocean, which are these huge areas off of um, the Gulf of Mexico or in the Chesapeake Bay where nothing is alive because of the amount of um, the excess nutrients that are running off of especially conventional farms. But if you look a little bit deeper, organic farms also benefit soils and water by building soil health. So they use things like um, compost and green manure instead of that synthetic fertilizer I mentioned. And by using these alternatives to chemicals to manage soil fertility, they're also building up carbon storage within the soil. And that leads to all kinds of benefits for the soil. It leads to a more rich ecosystem within the soil. It leads to better soil water holding capacity. It makes soil a lot more healthy and that soil can act as a filter for water. So any contaminants in the water get filtered out from that healthy soil and you end up with cleaner water. And I also wanna say that Organic helps climate change in the same way. So all of that carbon that gets stored in the soil of organic farms is carbon that isn't in the atmosphere leading to climate change. So it really helps sequester a very potent greenhouse gas in the soil rather than having it in the atmosphere contributing to climate change. And you just mentioned dead zones in the water. So we can we can see how that affects fish. But how do pesticides affect bees, birds, and other animals? So biodiversity is another area that organic has a synergistic impact on. So you mentioned pesticides and their impact on birds and bees and other organisms. And certainly, if you're spraying an insecticide, it's pretty clear how that's going to impact pollinators because you're spraying an ins a chemical that was made to kill insects. I actually was doing an interview with a reporter once and she was asking me about the mechanisms that this one insecticide could possibly have for killing bees. And I had to take a step back and remind myself and remind her that that's the point of these chemicals. The chemicals are made to kill insects. So it's no surprise that if you are spraying insecticides, it's going to be hurting the bees. But organic farms also have a lot of other benefits for organisms like pollinators and birds. They provide more habitat, so more places for these organisms to have nests. They also provide a lot more food. Um, so for bees, for example, they have flowering plants on the farms that the bees can get nectar from. And when you look at all of those benefits together, it has this wonderful combined effect 
of having this um, exponential beneficial impact on bees, on birds, on other organisms. So it's really important when you're thinking about organic to think about things holistically. What's the full system of benefits that you're getting? Because it's, it's so surprising that organic doesn't just have the obvious benefits that you can draw direct lines of conclusion to. It has really amazing combined effects that provide benefits to the environment beyond what you might think of on the surface level. So let's talk about the effects on the human body. What is the what is the research shown um, that conventional non-organic foods affecting pregnant women and developing fetuses? So the most research that's out there is on um, the impact of pesticides on farmers and people living in farming communities. And I always like to mention that because it's something that people forget to think about when they're choosing food. But it's so important when you're thinking about the health of the environment and the health of your families to also incorporate the health of the people who grew the food into your thinking. So there's been a lot of research looking at how exposure to these chemicals impacts farmer health, but also the health of children of either farmers or people living in these farming communities. And what that research overwhelmingly shows is that if you're exposed to these pesticides at high levels or even chronic low levels, it can have some serious impact, not just on your health, but on the health of your children throughout their lives. And there's this one fantastic study that's being conducted um, by UC Berkeley um, and the organization within Berkeley is called SEARCH. SEARCH is a group within the UC Berkeley School of Public Health, and it stands for the Center for Environmental Research and Children's Health. And they have been doing a project on a group of children who are almost not children anymore, um, but they started doing this research in the Salinas Valley. So that's an area in California that's surrounded by um, a lot of conventional farms. And they looked at pesticide exposure prenatally and then measured several different health traits throughout the lives of these children. And I'm not sure how long it's been going on, but it's been going on almost two decades now. And they've been able to see that increased exposure prenatally can have impacts on these children throughout their lives. So it's not just a one-time exposure, it can have a one-time impact. It can really cause fundamental changes that you can see throughout the lives of people. Um, another question that I always get is, okay, so you're talking about farmers and how this, how pesticide exposure impacts farmers and people living in farming communities, but I live in the city. I'm not around farms that are getting sprayed. I'm making a choice about whether to feed my family organic or whether to feed my family conventional. And my take on it is very much a precautionary approach because there are several studies out there showing that if you eat an organic diet, you're going to have fewer residues of pesticides in your body. And so for me, when I'm thinking about what food to buy 
my children, I always think, you know, I'm going to go with the food that I know doesn't have any of these pesticide levels. Because even if you look at the research and you say, okay, for some of these pesticides, there's no link between um, dietary exposure and health impact. My answer is always, sure, there's no link yet. But we used to think that exact same thing about a lot of different chemicals that we now know are toxic. And my classic example is the agricultural use of DDT. I mean, we used to think that was completely safe. You see pictures of the spraying of DDT and their children chasing behind a DDT spraying truck getting sprayed straight in the face. I found a picture of a pool getting sprayed with DDT and children playing in this chemical. And now we know that it has all kinds of human health impact, but that's 50 plus years since it's been banned. So when you're thinking about what food choices to make, one of the things that should factor into that decision is what kind of research we're going to find in the future about the chemicals that we're exposed to now. I also want to say for those parents who are just struggling to get their kids to eat anything, let alone whether it's organic and conventional, just relax, <laughs> do what you can, because not only is there research out there comparing 100% organic diets with 100% conventional diets, but we're starting to see some really cool research about what about those people who eat organic when they can, some of the times, and some of the times they eat organic, because that's a lot more realistic. I mean, nobody's going to have, um, or at least most people aren't going to have the ability to find 100% organic all the time, whether they don't have access to it or they can't afford it, whatever the case may be, most people are eating a mix of organic and conventional. And even that has a huge impact on the pesticide levels within your body. So there was one study that looked at different rates of consuming organic, and they showed that even if you choose organic some of the times, that still significantly decreases the amount of pesticides in your body. So don't stress about needing to get 100% organic onto the table. Just do what you can. And even choosing organic when it's available, when you can afford it, will have a really big impact on pesticide level exposure. And for people who can't afford or access um, an entirely organic diet, what foods are the so-called worst offenders that they should try to buy organic whenever possible? You know, for me, it's not a hard and fast rule of what you should buy organic when. It's really whenever you're able to buy organic affordably, choose that option, regardless of what the what the product might be. And there are also a lot of tricks that I use to make organic more affordable in my life. <laughs> I'm a nonprofit employee, so I'm not uh, I'm not raking in a huge amount of cash. So I also like to be a little bit frugal when I choose my food. So some of the ways that some of the tips that I give people to make organic a little bit more affordable are one thing that I do is 
whenever something's in season, I buy a lot of it and then I either freeze it or I can it. So my husband is actually this fantastic soup maker and he makes these big batches of soup with whatever is on sale or whatever is in season and is cheap. And then we freeze them in um, glass pint jars and then pull them out for an easy dinner, bring them to work for lunch. And it's a really economical way to get organic when it's cheap, when it's either on sale or in season, and then eat it throughout the year um, without breaking the bank. Another thing that I do is I actually buy a lot of frozen organic produce. So if something's expensive and I would like to eat it, whether it's broccoli or blueberries or whatever the case may be, I head to the frozen food section because sometimes you can find it a lot cheaper there and the quality is actually um, really high for frozen foods. Another thing that I look for is coupons. And if I can't find a coupon for something that I'd like to try organically, and it's a little bit too expensive for me, I actually reach out to the companies and nine times out of 10, they are more than happy to provide a coupon if I can't find one myself. Um, organic companies are really friendly and really encouraging to get people to try their products. And the last tip I'll give um, is I shop around. So I don't just go to one grocery store to buy my food. I go a little bit to my local grocery store, a little bit to big box stores, and you can find different products for really cheap at different stores. So um, it's kind of going against brand loyalty when it comes to where I shop, but that's really enabled me to find some stellar deals on organic food. And I've heard that if possible, if you're trying to decide between, you know, I can afford organic of one thing, but I can't afford it and everything that you should buy organic when it's a, what's the word, like a, a soft skin, whereas like things with a more of a peel, like a banana or an orange, um, just have lower levels of pesticides. So if you can't get that organic, it's, it's not so bad. What's your opinion on that? Yeah. So when it comes to peels that you can peel away, um, certainly some of the pesticides stay on the surface of the peels, but a lot of the pesticides that are getting used nowadays are what are called systemic pesticides. And that means once they're sprayed anywhere on the plant, they go systemic through the whole plant. So they, they get absorbed throughout that whole plant. So you're gonna see residues in the leaves, in the fruit, everywhere in that plant. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that um, a lot of the sprays that get sprayed are fungicides that happen after the fact. So it's not just in the field that you have to think about, it's really after those products get picked and handled and packaged all the way to when you're buying it in the grocery store. So a lot of those pesticides, um, whether they're getting sprayed in the field or to the point where you're buying them, don't always follow the rules and stay on the skin. And there's one class of pesticides that's been really gaining popularity lately called neonicotinoids. Um, 
I call it neonics for short. And these pesticides are so systemic that you can use them to treat seeds. And then when you plant those seeds, that pesticide stays in that plant as it grows. So you can find traces of that pesticide throughout the entire full grown plant, even if it hasn't been sprayed with neonicotinoids since it was a seed. So I actually wrote a blog on this called Not Skin Deep. Um, and it kind of goes into the details of the myth that if you peel a fruit or a vegetable, it gets rid of, rid of the pesticides. And so then what are your thoughts with um, the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 lists? Do you not think that those are, are very accurate to follow? Oh, I think those are great. I think, honestly, the more information out there, the better. And um, the more people educate themselves about what's on their produce, the better. But I don't use it as a hard and fast rule for myself. Um, the way that I shop is I go to the store. I usually have, I have two kids who are three and under. So things are a little bit hectic in my grocery cart. Um, you know, honestly, it's hard enough for me to get through my grocery list without forgetting something. So I don't really um, keep those as hard and fast rules because there are a lot of factors to think about. Um, and I really just buy what I can when I can. So I feel like there's some some misunderstandings with the use of pesticides in organic agriculture because pesticides are still used in some way. So can you talk about what types of pesticides are allowed with organic agriculture and how they differ from the ones used in conventional agriculture? Yes. And this is a really common myth about organic that there's no difference between the way organic uses pesticides and the way conventional uses pesticides because they're completely different. So first of all, before organic is ever allowed to use any materials, they have to prove that they have gone through every possible way of controlling whatever they're trying to control. Um, so for example, with if they have an insect pest, they have to use um, integrated pest management techniques that do things like planting hedgerows to attract beneficial insects that will eat those pests. Um, for weeds, they have to make sure that they're using all the mechanical methods of removing weeds and mulches. And if all of those tactics fail, usually, honestly, those are enough to create um, an ecosystem within the farm that has an equilibrium that controls most of the pests that you're worried about. If all of those fail, there's a very small handful of um, chemicals that they can use to as an emergency stop measure. Um, but all of those chemicals have to be safe for human exposure to the point where they don't have tolerances by the EPA. So when these materials get used, it's at the end of this long line of measures. And those chemicals are, are only really a handful. I forget the exact number. It's 
like under 10 that are allowed for use on organic as opposed to hundreds and hundreds that are allowed for use on conventional. And on organic, they can only be used in these very extenuating circumstances as opposed to conventional, where honestly, a lot of these chemicals are used prophylactically. So before there's even a problem, they're getting doused on the crops. And that's reflected in a lot of the research that compares residue levels on organic crops to those on conventional crops. Because if you look at the actual outcomes of where you're seeing residues, time and time again, residues are more frequent and at higher levels on conventional crops. So, um, so it's kind of this very common misconception. I also think that it's this red herring because every time we talk about one of the, you know, five chemicals that are allowed for use on organic, it's taking focus away from the hundreds of chemicals that are allowed for use on conventional chemicals, which some of them have extremely toxic profiles. So I know that this gets, um, brought up a lot because it has a shock factor but every time we talk about it it takes attention away from what's actually going on in the real world and another argument that i've heard against organic agriculture is that they have a smaller yield than conventional crops and thus you have to you know use more land to get the same amount and more water and so it's supposedly not as eco-friendly as just growing conventional crops what's what's your thoughts on that sure so first of all if you look at the amount of time and money that's been spent on conventional, increasing conventional yields, and you compare that to the research that's been done on organic, it's no wonder why some conventional um, crops have higher yields than organic. There's been billions of dollars and decades spent looking at how to improve yields on conventional crops. If we spent even a fraction of that money and time on organic crops, we could get up to and maybe even surpass conventional yields. Because if you look at the research that's been done so far, yields have been increasing steadily on organic over the years. So if we put a little bit more focus on how to improve yields in organic, we could have this amazing solution for a number of different environmental and health issues without seeing a drop in yield. So I like to put things in context because it's not that organic can't provide the yields that conventional can. It's that we haven't spent enough time or invested enough um, support for that research to see how high we can get organic yields. Because there are actually research studies coming out now that take this long-term look at organic yield. And they find that the longer you farm organically, the higher your yields get. In addition to a whole suite of environmental um, issues that become improved the longer you farm organically. So the longer you farm organically, the higher biodiversity rates you have on your farm, the more healthy your soil, etc. So 
that's that's the framing that I provide for people is first of all, let's think about what we need to increase organic yields, not just to the point where conventional yields are, but even above that. I also encourage people to think long-term. So if you look at current conventional farming, it's depleting the health of the soil. It's um, causing all kinds of collapses within pollinator populations. So let's not just look at current yields, but let's think 10, 20, 50 years down the road. If we destroy the ability of our soils to produce crops, if we um, devastate the populations of pollinators, we're not going to be able to produce food, period. So thinking about current yields isn't as important as thinking about what yields can we maintain over the next several decades? What yields are our children and their children going to inherit from these farms? Because the whole idea of organic is this sustainability. So we should be able to farm this way and create a healthy ecosystem that supports the land, the pollinators, everything that lives within our world for the long term. Whereas Conventional agriculture is really a short-term view of how to get the highest yield right now without taking consideration into consideration the effects that it might have on food security in the long run. I would also argue that yield isn't everything. So sure, improving yield is absolutely important. But when we talk about yields, it ignores a lot of other issues that are really important for our health and the health of the ecosystem. And that kind of plays into the long-term food security argument um, that I just made, but it also does have an immediate impact on the way that we're living and the health of our populations. So those are... Those are my main, um, my main takeaways when we think about yields is one, let's actually get some more research onto how to improve yields in organic because we can get there. Two, when we think about current yields, it's important to think long-term because conventional agriculture isn't a sustainable way to produce yields over the next 10, 50 years. And three, yield isn't everything. It's important to have systems that are supporting the environmental and human health right now while we're trying to produce enough food to feed our population. Now for my very last question, let's switch away from food and talk instead specifically about cotton. Now cotton is one of the most widely grown crops in the world and there seems to be a lot of misinformation as well over whether conventional or organic cotton is better for the environment. So what is your research found on this? I am so glad you brought this up because so often when we think about organic, we're thinking organic food. But it's also really important to think about organic when it comes to non-food products, and that includes body care as well as cotton. Um, and for cotton, the conventional production of cotton is just devastating on the environment. Um, 
even more so than food, because the chemicals that are allowed for use on conventional cotton production don't have to be registered as food safe. So they can be chemicals outside of what's safe for human consumption or what's deemed safe at certain levels. So um, you really see a lot more impact on the environment from conventional cotton than organic cotton. And the Organic Center is actually doing um, a report on this right now in collaboration with Professor Kathleen Dellett at Iowa State University, where we're digging into this and really analyzing exactly what the differences are between organic cotton production and conventional cotton production, not just the farming, but all the way through the supply chain to when you're buying that t-shirt at a store. So that's something to stay tuned for. Um, we will be releasing it within the next six months. So stay tuned and there will be more information about the differences between conventional and organic cotton. And that's a wrap. I'll be back next week with Lindsay Manderson, co-founder of The Zero Market, a zero-waste store in Denver, Colorado, to discuss how we both started our zero-waste stores and how you can too. If you find value in the Hippie Haven podcast, please share it with someone you know who'd be interested. You can leave a review on iTunes or whichever podcast app you're using, and also consider buying me a virtual cup of coffee to keep me going. Each podcast episode takes around six hours to create, and episodes cost about $50 each out of my own pocket. These costs include file hosting, editing, transcription for people who need or prefer visual content, and my own time of researching, drafting, recording, proofing, and promoting. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash Cali, that's C-A-L-L-E-E, to support the work I'm doing with a $4 cup of coffee. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart for spending this time with me, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.